0: We'll just pray in a moment um, and have a look at those verses that Jane read to us. Um, just wanted to remind you of the uh, just one event that's coming up um, on the 8th of July. There we are. Um, Jay John's doing a, a mission, um, a one off Sort of event at the Emirates Stadium uh, where Arsenal play um, occasionally. And the, sorry, and so there's a, an outreach event there and it's a chance to really bring, bring a friend, bring just one friend, that's the tagline, uh, to hear the gospel, to so have a great evening out. There'll be lots of music, lots of fun, uh, but there will be a clear, a clear message about what we believe as Christians and a chance for people to respond. And it will be a, a quality event. Um, if you're interested in going to know a few of you are, um, there, is, there is potential uh, for a coach to sort of go together. Um, if you want to go with each other, you don't have to. Um, and, uh, and to share, share some transport with God Central, we've got a few people interested in going. Um, so if you are interested in going by coach with other people, or you just want a ticket, um, we can get our tickets through God Central early, because they're partners with them. So let me know today, and I'll take your name, and I'll let you know. Uh, I'll put you in touch with them. So that's that. Okay. So we pray as we look at God's word together. Father God, we just want to uh, commit these next few minutes to you, Father, and uh, Lord, and amongst all the busyness of a uh, Sunday morning, Father, we just want to stop, um, and just in, in this moment of prayer, uh, Father, just quiet our hearts and, and just focus on you. Lord, it's easy, even in church, um, to not actually think of you. It's easy, Lord, to be have minds that are buzzing all over the place, thinking of next week's jobs, thinking of today's jobs. And Lord, actually, you call us to be still and know that you're God. And so, Father, whether we're Christians this morning, whether we're not sure, whether we're kind of almost or, or not quite there or whether we're committed Christians, but you would just quiet in our hearts. And we pray for your Holy Spirit, Father. We pray that he will speak your words, Lord. Not me, he will speak your words, Lord. And that people would hear, every single one of us, including me, we would hear what we need to hear, whether it's spoken um, from my lips or just into our hearts by you. We pray you would use everything for your glory now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got John chapter 15 open, uh, that would be brilliant. Um, so we've just got a, those 15 verses which Jane's just read out I won't, I won't read them out again um, hopefully you've remembered um, what she's read out in, in a change to previous weeks nothing will be appearing behind me at any point during the sermon um, maybe a pantomime villain I'm not sure but um, there would be no Bible verses so we're, we're two, two men down on projection um, if you have a gift for things like projection um, or PA or any other jobs that you see around the church you want to be involved um, don't wait to be asked Um, Come and speak to me and uh, we'd love to give you an opportunity to serve God in those practical ways in church life as well. So John chapter 15, 1 to 15, the healing of a man who's been paralyzed for a long time. Um, But before we get to that, I want to just uh, a little bit of a confession. Um, It won't shock you to know that I've not always been the picture of self-confidence and wholeness that you see before you this morning. I've not always been the stand-up guy that you're presented with every Sunday. I know that's going to surprise you. When I was younger, I was actually quite shy. Um, I know that's probably a a shock to you, maybe. Um, I was actually quite a shy young teenager. And I remember, particularly at school and particularly in groups of people, if we had to share an opinion, I would share my opinion. I would be quite happy to say, I think that, or I think the answer to the question is this. But if somebody else or two or three other people were to say, that's rubbish... I wouldn't go, no, you're wrong, I'm right. I would say, okay. And I'd go with the flow. And maybe you understand what it's to like to beat up that. I hated that side of my character, actually, even as a young guy. And, uh, and, and I remember at school... Um, if you ventured an opinion that went against the crowd, you'd probably get punched anyway. So uh, it was probably in your best interest to be quiet. But I remember one, one moment that stood in my mind for all of my life. And I've probably told this story to you before, but um, I'm sure you don't remember everything I say on a Sunday morning. So I'll tell you again, just in case you've forgotten. Uh, maybe there's one or two. And uh, I remember being in a maths lesson um, when I was about 11 or 12. And uh, we had a little small group, and we'd been set a maths question. And uh, my teacher was there with us, Mrs. Pegram. Uh, who I was sure was at least 400 years old at the time. Um, And we sat there and we had a question and answer. And I knew the answer. I knew the answer because maths wasn't my total weak point. And I remember saying that the answer is this. And uh, three of my friends, in a very loose term, um, said to me, no, the answer is this. The crowd said that. I said something else. I knew I was right, but I just went quiet and went with their answer. We told Mrs. Pegram the answer and she said, you're wrong, all of you. And I said, I knew it wasn't that. I knew it was this. And then she fixed me what can only be described as a death stare. And uh, she looked at me like that, leant across the table. In my mind, it's got bigger and bigger, mind you. Um, And she said something to me that stayed with me for many years. And she uttered these words, stick to your guns. And she said it as if, Here was a kid that needed to hear it above everybody else she'd ever met. It was almost like that, that she'd been waiting a long time to deliver this line to somebody that needed to hear it. And what she will never know is that 27 years later, I still hear Mrs. Pegram's very stern voice, stick to your guns. In my mind, it's now got the word boy on the end, but it didn't at the time. But she will never know that when I have to make a decision that's tough, When I have to stand up for something that I know may upset other people, but it's right. That actually, more often than not, I believe God reminds me of Mrs. Pegram's very stern advice to stick by my guns over the last three weeks we've been looking about uh, caring for each other compassion we've been seeing how life is a journey that we're all on a journey called life aren't we from beginning to end Ben from God's Central Church last week uh, really elaborated on that whole thing of life being a journey and how we're walking with each other just like Jesus walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus Um, our sermon series goes by a funny little Greek word called paraklesis um, and like most Greek words, there's actually two or three different versions of the same word. You can have paraklesis, parakleo, all have a slightly different meaning. And that word for compassion, which is what that word is in Greek, um, the different tenses, the different senses of that word, have compassion as something that we stand... Compassion as a, the act of standing with someone or the act of helping somebody, walking with someone through their journey of life. But actually, that word... Paraclesis can also have the sense of sharing compassion through exhorting someone through using our words to build somebody up, and Paul, who wrote quite a lot of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, uh, was very good at exhorting Christians to be better. He wrote his letters time and time again either to leaders in the church or to the church as a whole to encourage them, to exhort them to um, get them to be better christians and in two Thessalonians no, in one Thessalonians chapter two verse 11 to 12 he wrote these words he says for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory so often Christians aren't very good at exalting one another we think we are because we like to deliver tough love um, when we say tough love we mean tough with no love Christians are very good at saying where we're going wrong to each other. And Paul does the same message, but he delivers it with encouragement, comforting, urging, urges Christians to live better Christian lives, to be more like Christ in their words and their actions and their deeds. And so compassion, uh, we're going to see this morning, isn't just practical help. It isn't just doing for someone what they can't do for themselves. Actually, compassion is about exhorting people to live well, encouraging people, cheering them on, With our words, our words are very powerful as human beings, aren't they? We all know that our words can give life, but they can also cause death, one way or another. Our words are very, very powerful. So powerful that when the same man, Paul, wrote in Colossians chapter four, verse six, about the tongue and about words, he likened our words as as, like a sacrifice in the Old Testament. In Colossians chapter four, verse six. Paul says this, so I'll start from verse 5. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer Everyone, what a r- weird thing to say! I can't remember the last time I said to somebody, "Make sure when you go out, you season all your words with salt." He doesn't mean like that, by the way. He's not thinking of, uh, he's not concerned for flavor of how we speak. But that phrase, "seasoned with salt," actually goes back to the Old Testament, and in Le- Leviticus chapter two, verse thirteen, you get this brilliant description of the sacrifice at the temple. And as the Israelites brought sacrifices to God, often some of them would be seasoned with salt, would have salt sprinkled over them, and that was to make them acceptable to God. And so Paul says when you speak, what he's saying is actually you should understand that your words are like a sacrifice offered to God. In the same way that the Israelites sprinkled salt to make it acceptable, that's how you should see every word that comes out of your mouth. How you encourage each other, how you comfort each other, how you rebuke each other should be seasoned with a sort of sacrifice. Just let that sink in. Our words need to be fit for a king. Not just the words he gets from our mouth, but the words everybody gets from our mouths. Need to be fit for a king all the time. Just let that sink in. If every word we've ever uttered, me as well, I wonder how many times God rejects our offering. Because God would reject an offering of his people in the Old Testament. He would say, this is not good enough. I wonder how many times God has accepted our words and how many times God is unhappy with the words that come from our mouth. Words can give life or words can kill. It's time for a story about frogs, isn't it? That's what you're thinking. So, seriously, you're not. It's just me. Okay, let me tell you a story about two frogs. A group of frogs. I don't know what a, a is there a technical term for groups of frogs together? You must know, Tim. I don't know why. Who's <laughs> the sort of bloke would know that? No, no. It's not a hop of frogs or something. So let me tell you the story now. Anyway, uh, you can Google it during the sermon or maybe afterwards. So a group of frogs were hopping uh, contentedly through the woods as they do, going about their froggy business. When two of them fell into a deep pit. All of the other frogs gathered around the edge of the pit to see what could be done to save their companions. When they saw how deep the pit was, the rest of the group were dismayed and they agreed with each other that it was helpless. And they told the two frogs at the bottom of the pit that they should prepare themselves for the inevitable, that they were as good as dead. Unwilling to accept their terrible fate, the two frogs began to jump up and down with all their might in an attempt to get out. The frogs at the top began to shout that it was hopeless. The two frogs wouldn't be in that situation if they'd been more careful, perhaps. They shouted down, if you'd been more obedient to the way we go across the forest, you wouldn't be where you are if you'd been more responsible and obeyed the froggy rules. The The other frogs continued sorrowfully shouting down that they should save their energy and just give up since they were already as good as dead. The two frogs continued to jump as hard as they could, and after several hours of desperate effort, were quite weary. And finally, one of the frogs took heed to the call cool of his fellows above. Spent and disheartened, he quietly resolved himself to his fate. He lay down at the bottom of that pit and died as his friends looked on, on helpless grief. This is not from a child's book, by the way, um, the other frog continued, however, to jump up and down with every en- ounce of energy he could. Although his body was wrecked and with pain he was and he was completely exhausted, and his companions began anew to yell to him to accept his fate. They shouted down, Stop it, stop this pain, just accept you're gonna die. They shouted louder and louder and louder, yet the weary frog jumped harder and harder and harder, and then wonder of wonders, he managed to jump so high that he sprang himself from that pit. Amazed, the other frogs began to celebrate this miraculous freedom. They gathered round him and they said, why did you continue jumping when we told you it was impossible? Reading their lips, the astonished frog explained that he was deaf and that when he saw their gestures and their shouting, he thought they were cheering him on. What he had perceived as an encouragement inspired him to try harder and succeed against all the odds how words can give life or give death. There were two American psychologists. They did a study on why relationships fail, particularly they honed in on marriages. And of course, what I'm about to tell you isn't true of every single marriage or every single relationship, but I thought it was interesting reading about the power of words. They discovered an interesting trend over the marriages they put under the spotlight. They realized that couples within the first 10 years that would go on to split up Out of every hundred comments to each other, man and wife, ten would be insults. Ten would be put-downs. Ten would be cutting words or negative words in the first ten years. In the second decade of marriage, those that would eventually go on to split up would be flinging five times as many insults to each other as those in a stable relationship. They concluded this, that hostile put-downs act as a cancerous cell that, if unchecked, erode the relationship over time. In the end, the relentless, unremitting negativity takes control and the couple can't get through a week without a major blow-up. At this point, it is very difficult to come back. Perhaps not just marriages, perhaps friendships, perhaps family relationships, perhaps work relationships. Over the last three weeks, let's ask, have our words been cancerous? to other people have we given life by what we've spoken have we spoken in anger and how often have we spoken without thinking because that's just what we do and it's too hard to stop have we listened to all the sermons on paraclesis? have they just been good for a Sunday have they made a difference out of a hundred comments to any other person not just those we might be married to or going out with how many of those are negative in fact how many of those negative words that we say about that person behind their back that really is awful it is never too late to arrest decline in any relationship or any friendship let me tell you this morning you may be all out of proportion with your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or brother or sister or mom or dad it is not too late to change the direction but guess what it doesn't start with them it starts with you You make the change. I guarantee they will follow. In that Thessalonians passage, Paul exhorts those Christians to live lives worthy of God. I'm really interesting. The word "life," when used by Jesus, when he talked about life, he spoke with three different words for life. He spoke of external life, internal life, and eternal life. So, external, internal, eternal. Would have been really good to have had that behind me, wouldn't it? But never mind. Next week, and so. External life, Jesus would talk about. And by external life, we mean our lifestyle, our jobs, our daily routine, what we do, what affects us on the outside. By internal life, we mean our thoughts, our feelings, our decisions, who we are, why we do what we do. And then eternal life is the kind of life that goes on past the grave that only God can give through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in our reading this morning, we see a man at that sheep gate who for 38 years whose whole life had been completely ruined externally and internally. He'd been physically disabled my entire life. He'd been sitting on the floor waiting for someone to help him. His life was broken on all those levels. If you've got John chapter 5 open, it'd be good just to have it in front of you. And so let's think about his life broken on all those three levels. His external life was broken, wasn't it? Day after day, he lay in that place. He lay in that place with the belief that an angel would come from heaven, would come down, stir the waters. That's what they believed. And then whoever got there first would get their shot at a miracle cure. Day after day, he lay in that crowded, hot, dusty place, permanently hoping that today would be his day. A hope that was, of course, false. Of course, the angel never came down and stirred the water. That was a false hope but he knew anyway that he had no chance even if it were true of getting there first the hope that this man had was lottery hope it was one in a million hope it was a could be you but never will kind of hope me and uh, the family went off to Clacton Pier a few weeks a few months ago and uh, Jack and Hannah Marie went in the arcades as uh, as you do as a child I quite enjoyed it as well and uh, and they both had five pounds each and uh, I discovered Jack at one of those 2p machines which, of course, I had a go at about gambling, of course. I stopped the gambling problem before it got too serious. Um, but, you know, you put the two p's in and you hope that it's going to push, you know, 10 p back after spending five quid. It was one of these ones where you could win a £10 note. And he'd been there and he would spent £3.50. And even I got, I'm ashamed to say, slightly drawn into the whole thing. Because this £5 note was on the edge. It was on the edge. And every time a two p went in, it wobbled. And I thought, oh, if I could just go, uh, it might fall down. And after about 10, 15 minutes of him throwing two peas in this machine, it suddenly occurred to me that the people that ran this place had sellotaped it to a massive bit of glass, a uh, glass pyramid thing, and I said to him, "Oh, Jack, that ain't moving any time soon." Maybe 30 pounds worth of two pences might get it out, but that's not good It's not good exchange rates. Anyway, I called the man over, because I was quite cross, actually, because I thought, he's only 13, how dare you. I called the man over. I never do this sort of thing normally. And he came over, and I said, that's daylight robbery, and you know it. And he told me to go away. Um, And I said to Jack, in front of the man, I said, listen to this. This is why you don't put your hope in this sort of thing, because it is just destined to let you down. How many people... Uh, putting their life in a 2P machine, hoping that they will win the fiver. How many people? This man was him. How many people spell hope, M-A-Y-B-E, or spell hope, I-F space O-N-L-Y, maybe or if only? So let's go back to that man. What made his situation even worse wasn't just his disability, it was the fact that no one bothered to help him. He laid there 38 years and no one offered to get him in the water first. How many people do we walk past as Christians, who we don't bother to help because we're busy, because we've got lots on, because we've had a tough day, and it's easy to say from the front, I understand that, but it's even harder to read Isaiah 58 verse 10, when Isaiah says, when God says, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your light, and then your night will, would become like the noon day. We're called to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry. It's not quite good enough. It doesn't quite sit with us, does it? When we say, I would love to have helped, but... And Christ gave every ounce of his energy and his blood for our salvation. This man's external life was truly awful. But what had happened as it had begun to affect his internal life, his thoughts and his feelings. It's really interesting that having discovered that this man had been paralysed or, or disabled for 38 years, Jesus then goes to help. And he asks him a question, doesn't he? He says to the man, um, in verse 6, I think it is, Yes, having looked at him, he says to him, do you want to get well? It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's an obvious question. The answer is obviously yes, isn't it? He says, do you want to get well? But we get a sense of this man's internal state. It's a probing question because his response is even stranger than Jesus' question. He doesn't say yes, most definitely. What does he say? He says, sir, I've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. And you can just feel everything is just... I guess, I guess I want to get better. His internal life had just crashed. He was in a state of despair and self-pity. He'd given up. He'd become passive. He's got a what's-the-point mentality. And, you know, self-pity is well dangerous. Um, It's okay to be upset by things. It's okay to be cross with things. It's okay to have an emotional reaction to things. But self-pity is really, really dangerous. How many people do you know who become self-piteous? How many people do we know that say, oh, woe is me? That isn't right. Self-pity is really dangerous, described as an excessive, self-absorbed unhappiness over one's own trouble. People can make you feel bad. No one can make you feel self-piteous. We choose that emotion every single time. My friend describes it as having a pity party. We speak on the phone. It's not Ben, by the way. I know we mentioned our phone calls last week, but we don't do that. But I've got a friend of mine, and he'll say i feel really fed up this morning. And I say, okay, what's going on? And he'll say to me, I'm just having a pity party. Balloons, streamers, poppers and everything. I'm just fed up. But I know I'm giving into it. Self-pity is really dodgy. This man is self piteous. I've got no one to help me. What can I do? The answer is surely, yes, I want to get better. Part of compassion, then, coming back to our word, is to practically help people, absolutely. But actually, isn't it also to help people battle self-pity? Isn't it actually to try and help people to do a bit for themselves as well? Jesus says in verse 8, having heard his answer, he says, get up with an exclamation mark. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, oh, come on, I understand how you feel. It must have been really tough for you which is an okay thing to say, but he recognizes this man needs to actually stand and get up. So he says, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. In other words, choose life, stand up, fight, move. He exhorts him to stand up. Care doesn't always mean carrying someone's mat for them, but sometimes perhaps means encouraging them to pick it up themselves in the strength of God, of course. I think our children need that message in this day and age the message of perseverance the message of fighting the message of it's tough but fight on that's what our young people need to hear and our younger children need to hear and all of us for that matter need to be encouraged to carry our own mat sometimes not just have it carried for us Two thessalonians chapter 3 verse 5 was a a part of my uh, bible apps verse for the day i think it was on tuesday And uh, Paul, as he finishes off the second book to the Thessalonian church, um, is just sort of writing down his prayer for them. And in verse 5, he says this, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. It really struck me as I read that this week. We don't talk enough about the fact that life is tough and it stinks and it's hard, but actually you've got to persevere sometimes. Sometimes you've just got to stick at it because there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. And I know it's easy for me to say, but it is the truth. Christ persevered. We must persevere as well. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Think of the cross. Think of the, the sweat blood that he had in that garden. He persevered. And we must encourage people to do exactly the same. And in this story, I think everybody had a choice. passers by had a choice to help him or ignore him. We have a choice every day to help or ignore people. Jesus had a choice to heal him. We have a choice to offer prayer for people who are sick. The man had a choice, didn't he? That even though things were tough, that he wouldn't give in to self-pity. He had a choice to not despair. He had a choice to fight internally. He had a choice to stand. He had a choice to not be defined by his illness. But also when confronted with Jesus, he had a choice to stand up and pick up his mat and go home. And so today, as I finish, do just that. Make the right choice. Choose to stop. Choose to help. Choose to care. Choose your words carefully. Choose to exhort other people. Choose not to despair. Choose to fight what's happening to you. Choose to stand up and choose not to embrace self-pity. And remember that Jesus is the word of God and he speaks the words of life. And if you're in the pit, be deaf to every single other person that would tell you to give up and hear only the voice of God encouraging you to jump higher and higher and higher. So we pray? Father God, we lift up all these words to you. Father God, we want to be a people. the Lord, don't just walk by on the other side. You don't just watch people fall into a pit and say, well, there you are. What can you do? if you have just done this and done that. Lord, hope isn't spelt what if or maybe. Lord, you call us to be a people that cheer others on. Father God, forgive us for those moments when we say nothing. Lord, our words really do count. And Lord, I pray for all those people that we pass. They may not be physically um, disabled in any way, but they may have emotional or mental problems, mental health issues. They may be people, all who feel like they've sat in the same spot for 38 years with no one caring. Oh, give us the challenge of just showing a kind word, an offer of prayer, a bit of interest. Father God, may we not rule out compassion because we're ruled by our busy schedules. May we change our lives so we have more time to show love for those that need it. Father God, we lift up everything we've said to you this morning and we pray that you would challenge us and encourage us and we thank you, Lord, that we were once that frog at the bottom of that pit and you're the one who called us out of that darkness into your life because Jesus died for us and we chose to take his hand and follow him into your kingdom. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to say a little prayer, actually, together. Michael, if you don't mind. Um, It's going to appear on the screen. Um, I'm just going to say it together. It's just a little prayer to finish off. Um, Just sort of summing up some of what's been said this morning. Okay, so we'll say it together, if you'd like to join me. In fact, should we stand? Let's stand. If you can. If you can't, don't worry. So let's pray together. Father... Allow me to serve others with a joyful heart, never keeping score, always giving, never expecting to receive. Allow me to give of myself, to give of my talents and of my goods, to give my time and my energy, to give of my heart and my soul. Help me understand the needs of others, never criticizing, never demeaning, never scolding, never condemning. You have been so gracious to me, always loving, always forgiving, always restoring, never gloating over my defeats, even when I have been so wrong. Father, keep a a condemning spirit far from my heart and further from my lips. Allow me to serve as others, as you serve, with gentleness, compassion and tenderness, never diminishing the worth of another, choosing to extend mercy to the brokenhearted like you have repeatedly shown it to me.